Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, safeguarding the Canadian economy was Freeland's focus. I felt that Canada was sort of a powder keg and that you could have a violent physical confrontation at any point. The Deputy Prime Minister testified she feared border blockades could damage Canada-U.S. relations. Worries from the White House were a factor in trying to solve the stalemate in Windsor. Plus, the Prime Minister's inner circle. Three of the Prime Minister's closest advisors take us inside the PMO on the second-to-last day of testimony at the Emergencies Act Commission. We'll have a live look at their testimony and dig in to how all of this sets up Justin Trudeau's turn on the stand tomorrow. Plus, building climate resiliency. It's incumbent upon us not to simply rebuild in the same place and in the same way, because that just sets you up for future failure. Ottawa puts up $1.6 billion to help cities build infrastructure that can withstand the impacts of climate change. Critics complain it's a drop in the bucket compared to what's needed. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. Our trade was being stopped and was being seriously blocked. And I was very worried that that was handing arguments to U.S. protectionists who were already on the move and that had that relationship been seriously damaged, that would really hurt Canada. Well, two of the most powerful women in the federal government were explaining today some of the factors that the feds considered before invoking the Emergencies Act. Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Christopher Freeland spent hours testifying at the commission looking into the use of the act while the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, is still speaking right now. Now, Freeland went into great detail about concerns over the potential economic fallout from border blockades by the so-called Freedom Convoy. Remember, the blockade at Windsor's Ambassador Bridge became a flashpoint during the protests. That critical international trade route handles about 27% of trade between Canada and the United States. It's also a key artery for North America's auto industry. We're keeping an eye on the testimony as it continues to develop right now, but to get you caught up on what is happening so far, joining me right now in studio is CTV News' parliamentary reporter, Annie Bergeron-Oliver. Annie, thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate it. Now, we know that what we're hearing right now is, uh, and what we heard today from Christopher Freeland, is her discussions with a key economic advisor in the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. How did concerns from the White House factor into Canada's use of the Emergencies Act? So first of all, she said that this top White House official you're talking about, it was very rare to even talk to him in the first place. She said this was a seminal conversation and said it was critical mm -hmm. because she said she sort of got the idea after this conversation that maybe the United States was viewing Canada as sort of a vulnerability when it came to a trading relationship. You have to look at the greater, the greater context here. At the time, the Americans, specifically Biden, was really trying to do a built-in America. And there was a lot of controversy and talk about a tax credit that was going to be available for electric vehicles that was only built in the United States. And that would have significantly hurt the Canadian automakers. You know, we did eventually get a, that exemption mm -hmm. from that tax credit, but it took months. And so Canada was worried this was going to be in place. The Americans were really looking at building and buying in America only. And so at the time, 
there were these conversations that were going on and Canada was worried and the Freeland talks about the fact that she feared that Canada was looking to the Americans like a vulnerability, that maybe this was sort of better for them to build in the United States. That way, if these kinds of things happened, they wouldn't be as impacted. And in this conversation, Brian Dees, who's the White House official, um, apparently she said to him, look, if this isn't cleared up, the Windsor Ambassador Bridge in the next 12 hours, then a lot of the plants, the auto plants along the border are going to close down. So she said that this really is sort of spurred her to action. And uh, she went then to the table and said, look, we need to, to end this Windsor blockade now. That clear economic factor that we've been hearing about, not just obviously on that key trading route. I wanted to ask you as well, we're hearing from members of the Prime Minister's inner circle, Katie Telford included in that. We are also hearing that the government had actually considered engaging with the convoy at one point. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so Katie Telford just finished talking about the fact that uh, it was sort of brought up that, you know, they wanted to engage. That's what the leaders of the convoy protest had been talking about. And so she said that there was a brief discussion about it, but it didn't go very far because Katie Telford said they had a hard time figuring out who the leaders were of this convoy. They didn't even know where to go, and police had sort of found that as well. There wasn't one clear leadership. Mm -hmm. She also talked about the fact that you know, they, she wasn't 100% sure that this was really a protest built on vaccine mandates. And so then it would even be hard to negotiate. She also said that, you know, first of all, the government wouldn't even negotiate when it came to vaccine ma mandates because Telford said that they were science-backed. It was still a policy mm -hmm. that was in place and one that the government did believe in. So she said basically that there was a brief initial casual discussion about the fact that these individuals wanted to negotiate with the government. But she said it didn't really go very far because they didn't really know what to do. So casual, but nothing more serious than that. Exactly. She said they didn't even know who to talk to, didn't know who to talk about, and what subjects were important. Right. Thank you. Andy Bergeron Oliver uh, reporting for us today here live. Now, some of those concerns over the supply chains that we were just talking about with, with Andy were top of mind for our next guest, who is cited a few times by Deputy Prime Minister Christopher Freeland. Flavio Volpe is the president of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association. Thanks for joining us, Mr. Volpe. I wanted to ask you, you were on the front lines of those discussions with the U.S. at the time. Getting the Americans to include Canada in that Build Back Better legislation, what was at stake at the time when the Ambassador Bridge was being blocked and how bad was the timing for the negotiations that you were at? Couldn't have been worse. The Americans had proposed legislation that had a tax credit that was available to buyers in the U.S. on cars only made in America. Here we make 2 million cars and sell 85% of them to the U.S. So hundreds of thousands of jobs in this country relied on our ability to change that that made in America to made in North America. And the chief proponent of that made in America only uh, 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 piece of legislation was uh, uh, Debbie Stabenow, senator from Michigan. Uh, at the time that, uh, that we were trying to negotiate inclusion of Canada, you know, we have a blockade of a bridge that um, caused uh, for the closure of plants on both sides of the border and all the way down to Kentucky. There were major assembly plants that were closed because they couldn't get Canadian parts. And we heard uh, Michigan uh, congressional leaders say, maybe we shouldn't be uh, uh, sourcing our parts and our goods and our, 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 our critical tools in Canada. And maybe we should, we're right to be saying we're doing this in the U.S. And so uh, it, it was a very precarious time in the context of the time uh, was, uh, couldn't have been worse timing with Canada-U.S. trade relations. 
Yeah, and, uh, you know, Windsor Mayor Drew Dilkins did refer to the border blockade as a national economic emergency. I imagine you agreed, especially at that point. I mean, it was so for us, $100 million worth of parts go in, in total in the two directions uh, um, uh, over that bridge every day. The shutting of that bridge shut the entire industry for about five or six days. There was nobody making parts or assembling cars in Canada and in parts of the U.S. because of this bridge. It was literally the worst thing that anybody could do to the operations of uh, the automotive sector in Canada. And for me, one of the things I said at the time, too, was these are people from Windsor in a car town, shutting down their neighbors' uh, jobs and economic prosperity and potential long-term outlook, and they should have been embarrassed. And uh, we stepped in uh, to uh, to go to court to seek an injunction to get them uh, to clear the bridge, and we got a temporary injunction. But I had petitioned uh, both levels of government to say, that's a 10-day injunction. We need to make sure that that bridge stays clear. Uh, it, nothing's going to stop them from coming back on the 11th day, and it's not for us as a private sector uh, group to go back into court. Uh, let's get, um, let's make sure that we 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 give certainty to our American partners that their goods and our goods uh, continue to flow as usual. So you were also part of those very difficult negotiations for this USMA that with the Trump administration at the time. Can you help Canadians understand how protectionist the current Biden administration has been? And I, and I wanted to know, are there any type of scars that are left over from that blockade right now that you continue to deal with in your negotiations on the other side of the border? Look, I think your viewers all know how, how uh, uh, entrenched that protectionist uh, language was during the NAFTA renegotiations with the Trump administration and the big threats from Trump to put a 25% uh, tariff on all Canadian cars and parts. But what we don't know is that this, this measure that was proposed at the time by the Biden administration, $7,500 up to $12,500 of subsidy on cars only made in the U.S., was the equivalent of a 33% tariff. It was more protectionist than anything that we had experienced during the uh, Trump administration. It would have uh, crippled, if not ended, the auto sector here north of the border. We're in critical negotiations. We're doing a lot of bilaterals. Uh, your viewers might remember that the prime minister uh, himself went down to meet with uh, Biden uh, several months before that, and Mary Yang and Chrystia Freeland and Francois-Philippe Champagne were all meeting their counterparts, and we, uh, probably met with 10 uh, uh, senators in, in Congress, people who were important swing votes on this. Um, these were tough negotiations with an administration that has gone into an industrial policy uh, a format where they are spending tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars in electrifying uh, the American automotive sector. And they said, if we're going to spend American money, it's got to go to uh, um, American um, American companies and sources. And so Right in the middle of this, we're showing them that with 30 pickup trucks uh, uh, and uh, a little bit of defiance, you can shut down uh, trade uh, in this sector across the continent. And and um, those were very bad messages that we were sending that needed to be uh, fixed right away. Flavio Volpe, always appreciate the time. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Mike. Tomorrow, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will be taking the stand at the Emergencies Act inquiry. That's slated to begin at 9.30 Eastern. We will have special coverage right here on CTV News Channel and a full coverage with a special edition of Power Play at 5 o'clock. Still to come, 
a down payment to help communities withstand the effects of climate change. It's a $1.6 billion federal climate adaptation strategy. But what can this plan offer communities across the country as they try to prepare for the next climate change event? Well, we'll talk to Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson when PowerPlay returns. $1.6 billion for a climate adaptation strategy, the federal government's announcement, is aimed at helping vulnerable communities deal with natural disasters sparked by the warming planet. From wildfires leveling Lytton, B.C., to Hurricane Fiona unleashing havoc on Atlantic Canada, Canadian communities are feeling the effects of climate change. But how do those communities adapt to natural disasters that are becoming more frequent and more powerful? And is $1.6 billion enough money? Let's find out. And joining me now is the Minister of Natural Resources, Jonathan Wilkinson. Thank you so much for taking the time, Minister. I'll get right to it. Today's announcement of $1.6 billion over five years has been described by some as a down payment with an acknowledgement that more will be required. Now, the Insurance Bureau of Canada says $5.3 billion is needed annually. After planning this strategy for almost two years, why isn't this more of a fulsome plan? Well, I think it is a fulsome plan. <clears throat> and if you read it, it, it kind of goes through all of the various areas that one has to think about in the context of adapting to the climate change that is already baked into our future, irrespective of how quickly we reduce emissions going forward. Um, the $1.6 billion is important, but it's on top of over $8 billion that we've actually already committed to adaptation-related efforts. Yes, we are going to need to do more. All provinces and territories, all municipalities are going to need to do more. But there's really important steps forward here around wildfires, flood mapping, money for poor communities to actually do their own uh, disaster um, planning and, and prevention planning and, and to actually work on, on infrastructure-related projects that are going to help them reduce the overall cost of some of the, uh, the things that we've seen from extreme weather events. I take your point about what you said uh, earlier in, in this answer, saying that essentially this is uh, part of the cost of what we know what we need to pay for, regardless of how we reduce emissions. But some would argue that maybe that money and that effort should go into mitigation uh, rather than actual uh, adaptation. What do you say to those people? Well, I say you've got to do both. Um, of course, we have to be working on mitigation, because if we do not, we're creating many, many, many times the problem that we're going to face um, with respect to adapting. But but I would also say there is no choice but to make investments with respect to adaptation. I mean, look, the the uh, the floods in British Columbia right now, the estimates in terms of the, the impact of that is well over $5 billion. Um, you saw the impacts of Hurricane Fiona. We've seen the wildfires in Fort McMurray. I mean, climate change is here, um, and, uh, and these things are going to have significant economic costs. If we do not address them and try to prevent um, some of these impacts, it's going to be far worse. Uh, you know, let's let's be clear. The most recent study that was done on adaptation tells us that, you know, in the absence of significant action to reduce emissions, it's probably going to cost us a hundred billion dollars a year by 2050. That's an enormous number. So it is really important that we're both mitigating, but we're also uh, investing in prevention. So then why not go more aggressively towards the mitigation? I mean, it's it's a fact that your government hasn't met a single emissions target or reduction target that you've set for yourselves. 
But that's actually not true. I think you've been listening a little bit too much to Mr. Polyev. I mean, um, it was the conservatives that left the uh, the Kyoto Accord. Our our uh, our commitment initially when we came to power was in 2015 was that we would bring forward a plan that would show how we would meet the 30% reduction in emissions by 2030 um, that Canada had committed to under Harper, but had done nothing to actually advance. We actually put in place that plan. Um, and then we actually raised the level of ambition and our target now is 40 to 45%, which is an incredibly ambitious target given that it's only about eight years to 2030. So we are absolutely on track to meeting that target. And anybody who says that we have not but met on, any on target track. actually is not telling you the truth. But Minister, in all due respect, with all due respect, you say on track to meet it but meeting it I mean those are two well, different the target things, is in they? 2030 so I mean you know I was the Minister of Environment and Climate Change when we brought in the Net Zero Accountability Act and and that actually requires periodic updates in terms of the progress that's being made precisely so that people can actually measure the progress um, the next uh, the next uh, milestone for that I think is 2025 uh, it's either 2025 or 2026 but it was an accountability measure but I would tell you that emissions have come down uh, over the last couple of years and we expect that they are going to continue to come down in line with that target I mean, look, the Conservatives can say all they want, but if you look internationally at what the international community says about Canada and climate change, we are one of the leaders in the world. We have perhaps the most detailed climate plan that exists anywhere on the planet. We have been uh, taking action across all sectors, and most folks look to us outside of this country as the model. I want to also ask you about some other criticism that we're seeing from this, that the funding mostly tops up existing programs that won't cover major costs of major projects. One of those major projects is a proposal to raise dikes that safeguard the land link between Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. Why won't it cover all of those types of projects as well? Well, there were significant top-ups. I mean, uh, in the disaster, uh, what's called the DMAF um, fund, so the da Disaster Mitigation Adaptation Fund, which uh, is a mechanism where municipalities can actually work directly with the federal government without being necessarily mediated through provincial and territorial governments to apply for funding to actually do those kinds of projects. Um, there's money that's going into the Green uh, Municipalities Fund uh, through uh, through the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, again, to target municipal infrastructure. Um, and there's a separate fund for Indigenous communities. So, you know, do we need to do more as we move forward? Of course we need to do more. I mean, we are going to have to be making investments in adaptation, you know, every year as we move forward. This, this, uh, the, the effects of climate change are baked into our future, unfortunately. Um, and so we do need to ensure that we continue to make investments. But of course, we actually have to take active, uh, active measures to reduce and mitigate carbon emissions, because otherwise you can't adapt if, if the problem becomes so enormous um, that it's just not feasible. We're not there yet, but we have to take action. I've got only about 30 seconds, but I wanted to pick up on uh, the point that you're talking about with Indigenous communities. We know that uh, people in the North are feeling the effects of climate change way before anybody else in this country. So how does this plan specifically re respond to those communities while also protecting their traditional lands? Yeah, I mean, certainly the North, we are seeing the, 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 the warming uh, moving much more quickly than in the rest of Canada. Um, that affects pretty much everything. I mean, all kinds of infrastructure, particularly if you look far enough north that you're talking about permafrost, where the effects of permafrost melt will be felt on all kinds of infrastructure that exists up there. 
We, uh, we obviously are going to need to be working with uh, territorial governments, with indigenous communities to do that. There is money in uh, actually flowing through my department to do work with both coastal and northern communities on uh, adaptation planning. And certainly there are going to need to be investments going forward with respect to ensuring that we have more resilient infrastructure in the north in particular. Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. <laughs> thank you very much. Okay, so that's the federal government on climate adaptation, but municipalities are the ones that have to pick up the pieces when a climate disaster devastates a community. The Federal Federation of Canadian Municipalities responded to today's announcement saying it will help better protect Canadian communities, but the FCM is calling on the federal government to commit to long-term funding in next year's budget. So how does this help Canadian communities that are trying to take action right now, and what other support do they need? Let's find out. And joining me now is Halifax Mayor Mike Savage. He's also the chair of the Big City Mayor's Caucus. Welcome to the show, Mayor. Thanks for taking the time. I wanted to ask you, your province hit very hard by Hurricane Fiona, causing a lot of damage, specifically in Cape Breton. How do you see today's news with this new national adaptation strategy? Well, I, I welcome it. I think it's a really important and significant step. Uh, we did get hit, as did uh, PEI and uh, Newfoundland and Labrador and uh, New Brunswick as well got hit a little bit by it, but we all got hit by Fiona. These storms are hitting us a lot more often than they used to. The, the water is uh, changing temperature and their hurricanes aren't dying out like they used to. So, um, you know, we, we face a lot of other threats as well, but certainly on the hurricane front, it's, uh, it's dramatic here on the East Coast. While you welcome it, I mean, there's also the consideration of, you know, what are we going to do in the next few months? So when you consider what we've seen in places like Lytton, B.C., and then the damage from extreme weather out east, what do you tell fellow mayors who are worried that this national adaptation strategy won't give the immediate help possibly for next year? Well, you know, the government does have, has uh, put some money into uh, relief efforts in the, as a result of Fiona, as it has with other um, uh, you know, tragic events, which are the result of climate change. Uh, we want, you know, we want regular funding uh, for the disaster uh, mitigation um, and adaption fund. We need that. Uh, but this is significant. Uh, we've asked for a billion dollars a year, but this is a top up on the DMAF. And very significantly for us, it's uh, $530 million for the Green Municipal Fund, which is administered by FCM. They do an awesome job of administering it. Uh, Way Mason, one of my councillors, is now on the board of directors. Um, and that fund has the potential to directly support adaptation efforts in places like Halifax. It's done amazing work already. So, And the other thing it does is it shows that the government has, uh, has a belief in the ability of cities to do this work, which we've shown in large communities and small. Um, you know, municipalities are, I think, leading the way on uh, climate adaptation as well as on mitigation. So it's an important uh, fund from that point of view. I wanted to dig in a little deeper on what you're asking for in that sort of predictable long-term funding for climate resilient infrastructure. You said uh, in a press release that you want the government to commit through that disaster mitigation and adapt adaptation fund in budget 2023. What is that level of commitment you're looking for on an ongoing basis? Well, we think that it requires a billion dollars a year as a minimum on a regular basis to adjust to the change in climate. Um, as you mentioned already, the fires in, in Lytton, we've had, I think every province in, and uh, territory in Canada has felt the impacts of a changing climate, the dramatic 
volatile impacts of, of the weather. On the East Coast, it's, it's hurricanes, but it's also things like wildfires and floods. It's volatile winter storms. Um, it's things that used to happen once every 50 years that's now happening every few years. So it requires effort. I do applaud the federal government. We need more action from provincial governments as well. And I believe municipal governments, like our own, we have a, a climate action plan called Halifax, which we're very proud of, which is getting a, a lot of attention, which looks at adaptation, looks at mitigation. It looks at those things that we specifically as a municipality can do, but also works with other orders of government, the private sector, NGOs, and community. That's the kind of effort that's required if we're going to really take the changing climate seriously, because it has the potential to be not only devastating uh, globally, but locally as well. Yeah, today's announcement is mostly for this top-up of existing programs, but it won't cover the cost of major projects. There is a proposal to raise the dikes that safeguard the land link between Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. This new strategy, it seems, won't cover that. How much of a problem do you think that is? Well, I think as long as the government is looking at options, you know, th this issue of the isthmus between New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, I remember being raised by Bill Casey uh, when I was a member of Parliament more than a decade ago. And uh, it's a big issue. Uh, it affects things like food security in a very dramatic way for this province of Nova Scotia. That probably requires special funding. And um, I'm hoping that governments working together, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, as well as the federal government, uh, we'll, we'll look at projects like that. And there are other large ones as well. But there's a ton of other things we can do in preparation uh, for the changing climate. Um, you know, there's engineering studies that can do, there's analysis that can be done. You know, we need to be really evaluating where we are on all of our assets here in Halifax. It's in our Halifax plan. It requires support from the other orders of government, and that's what we expect. Halifax Mayor Mike Savage, thank you so much for taking the time joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Coming up, healthcare crisis in Ontario. That province's Ministry of Health is asking doctors at family clinics to extend their evening and weekend hours. Will that be enough to keep sick kids out of Ontario hospitals? CTV News' Queen's Park reporter Siobhan Morris will give us the latest on that next. What will it take to lessen the burden on Ontario's overwhelmed children's hospitals? Hospitals across the country are being flooded by patients with flu, RSV, and COVID-19. And that pressure is hitting pediatric units right across the province of Ontario. So will extending hours make a difference? Well, the Ontario Ministry of Health is asking primary care doctors to expand their hours into evenings and the weekend. Why does the province think that this will lessen the load on children's hospitals? Let's find out. Joining me right now is CTV's Queen's Park reporter, Siobhan Morris. Siobhan, thanks again for joining us. Can you explain this call from the provincial government? The idea really is to take pressure off of hospitals and to be more accommodating to parents. So if you're a mom who works nine to five and you come home and your child has a bit of a bit of a sniffles and you want to have them seen, in some cases, the only opportunity after hours might be to go to a hospital. But the province wants to change that. They want it, they're want they saying if you have options to see a doctor at nighttime, on the weekend, when it fits your schedule, well, then maybe you're less likely to go to uh, an ER, a pediatric hospital instead. The problem with that is many people don't have a primary care physician in Ontario. And we're also hearing from doctors saying that they've all already 
opened up their clinic hours. And are they willing to extend them even more? Most of them say that they don't really see how they can. Some clinics are already running 24 hours a day, seven days a week. In other cases, it is a matter of you know, risking burnout. They've been going flat out, many of them say, for the last month and a month or so, uh, seeing this surge in cases of RSV and influenza in particular, and to some degree COVID-19 too. And it's really a risk to extend them even more. And they say that they're just not sure what more they can really do. And they feel a little insulted that the province suggested there is more they could do. Yeah, and just how critical is the situation in Ontario hospitals right now, Siobhan? Especially when it comes to pediatrics, it's quite dire. We've seen uh, more hospitals, a pediatric hospital in London this week, say that they have no option but to cancel or postpone surgeries to maintain critical care space for uh, pediatric patients. We are starting to also hear that that's going to be a problem maybe for some time. Uh, a hospital in Toronto today was uh, fundraising, asking for money to buy uh, some equipment that would allow them to maintain some surge capacity for pediatric patients, which would suggest that's going to be a problem maybe outside of the next few weeks and months. CTV Siobhan Morris at Queen's Park. Appreciate you doing this for us tonight. Thanks. You're welcome. Now here's some other news you need to know. The Supreme Court of Canada has unanimously rejected an appeal from four men convicted of child sex offenses. Each of the men argued police entrapment as grounds to dismiss their cases. The men were among more than 100 people arrested by York Regional Police during a multi-year investigation into child sex trafficking back in 2017. And in their fall economic update, Alberta is projecting a big surplus. The province is expecting a $12.3 billion surplus this fiscal year, thanks largely to high oil prices. That surplus would have been even higher but just this week, Premier Danielle Smith announced a series of tax breaks and benefits to offer inflation relief. That package came in at $2.4 billion. And history was made at the World Cup match between Portugal and Ghana. It's Ronaldo, it's 1-0 Portugal. With that penalty kick, Portuguese forward Cristiano Ronaldo became the first men's player to score at five different World Cups. Ronaldo joins an elite group that includes Canada's Christine Sinclair. Portugal beat Ghana in that game 3-2. Coming up, Canadians are getting a rare glimpse inside those inner workings of the government's response to the convoy protests. So what did we learn from today's testimony? Well, Press Gallery will be here to dig into that. What I am very clear about is the blockade of the bridge made this a real economic crisis for Canada. And that was a moment when, as finance minister, I really had to figure out a way to stop the harm to Canada from getting worse and from really snowballing and irreparably damaging our country. 
There was Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Christian Freeland talking about the blockade at the bridge. While convoy organizers largely focused their attention on Ottawa, it was the blockade at the Ambassador Bridge that became a turning point during the protest. Was the potential economic fallout enough to warrant invoking the Emergencies Act? And as we hear from Trudeau's top staffers right now, what can we learn from how this government handles a crisis? Let's bring in the press gallery panel to weigh in. CTV National News Ottawa Bureau Chief Joyce Napier, Toronto Star Parliamentary Reporter Stephanie Levitz, and our special guest is Laura Kukamaki. Um, as she's a former Conservative Issues Manager at the Prime Minister's Office. She's now a principal with Ernst Cliff Strategies. And if I butchered your name, Laura, I'm sure <laughs> I will hear about it from your husband, Corey. I'm going to get a text, I'm sure. But let's get you did, to you. Okay. Let's get, for you, get to you first. Prime Minister's Office, we're getting this really unique glimpse into the inner workings there. How rare is this to see how the Trudeau government is handling this crisis? Yeah, I think it's very rare. I mean, we haven't seen anything like this throughout the whole time that I've been involved in politics. I think, um, you know, we have seen senior leadership uh, members and the prime minister at committee. um, Mm -hmm. But obviously, that's a process where they control. Um, They know the details, but what, uh, how much time members have to ask questions um, and sort of what the procedure is going to be, whereas this is a much longer affair um, and it's hard for them to predict what questions might come up. So it is a very unique um, glimpse into how issues are handled uh, in the top office in Ottawa. It almost seems like Katie Telford is becoming a household name. I mean, we had her, if I'm not mistaken, the We Charity uh, testimony as well. What does this sort of say to have the chief of staff with the prime minister there? And not to say, you know, revealing any secrets, Laura, Mm -hmm. but certainly sort of giving us a glimpse glimpse and, you know, I, I hate this this term, but how the sausage is made. Uh, Yeah, I mean, you are seeing some of those details, especially with so many documents being released. I mean, you're seeing text messages between senior staff, between ministers, um, things that, um, funny enough, I mean, it doesn't seem like they realized would be public, despite Mm -hmm. the risks of um, invoking the Emergencies Act. Um, And it's not like the inquiry piece of this is a surprise. So I do think this is extremely rare. I mean, the last inquiry would have been, you know, almost over... 15 years ago, if not 20 years ago. Um, so it is a, it is a very interesting uh, and somewhat uh, alarming, I think, glimpse into how uh, decisions are made. Yeah, Joyce, when you take a look at this, what does that give you as a glimpse inside of how either on top of it they were or not? Well, a little bit of both. I mean, they were as on top of it as their uh, police uh, information or intelligence was giving them. Uh, and, and look, we had a first... A first-hand look at what was going on. And when Krisha Freeland said that she was actually, uh, what did she call it, a, a powder keg, the, the possibility of a violent confrontation, you know, was, was real to her. But it was also real to those of us who live here. It was, it was, there was the potential of this turning very, very nasty. And we, I, I don't think we should forget that. And I think it's interesting to see these people now um, testifying under oath, being questioned by various lawyers and, you know, having to tell the truth. Not that they don't tell us the truth, of course, <laughs> but... but it gives a version but, of it. No, but, you know, they have to get off their talking points. Yeah. They have to stop being as prudent as they usually are. And they have to get down to answering the questions. I find that fascinating. Uh, although, you know, some of maybe Christian Freeland's answers were very, very long. You got, you really did get a glimpse into what they were thinking and how actually confusing 
this yeah. was. How, how telling was it for you, Steph, in, in terms of what was actually happening behind the scenes? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that strikes me is the emotion that clearly was there. And you could see that manifest in a bunch of different ways, right? You could see it in Christopher Freeland's testimony today. You can see it in the text message exchanges. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of the intemperate language, perhaps, some of the joking that was going on. And, and you can see almost the stress, if, if we're being kind about it, some of the stress that clearly they were under, the, the pressures all levels of government policing were also facing, that this was a very, this was being sort of handled humanly, which yeah. is to say that, we, you know, I think sometimes we expect our leadership to act in, in a not, we just don't put that human lens on things. At the same time, they're under pressure, they're under stress, they don't know what's going on, they're afraid, they have the burden of leadership. None of these things necessarily account for or justify or excuse any decisions that were made because at the end of the day, emotion is not evidence. One yeah. hopes that they can set aside their emotion and look at the evidence. But in a rapidly evolving situation like this, I think what we see perhaps is sometimes emotion getting in the way of evidence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Laura, I wanted to bring you in on that as, as well. I mean, how much do we forget that there are people behind these politicians and the decisions that they make? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think people do forget that a lot of the time, especially when people aren't used to seeing this kind of insight. Um, one of the things that struck me earlier, just on our way over here, um, was some of the earlier testimony from the three PMO officials where they clearly were very affected by what happened in, on January 6th in the United States. Mm -hmm. You can tell that that was almost like a cloud over some of their thinking. Um, it even showed that there were documents that were shared via email with them where, you know, at first it was sort of like a safe and there wasn't anything really of suspect before it actually came to Ottawa, um, but they were still and admittedly worried about that. So I think Steph is right that there is this emotional aspect. And you saw that with Minister Freeland earlier today, too, when she got emotional talking about how um, the country's economy could be affected. So. And, and the interesting thing is that it allows us to judge today what was happening then, because we tend to judge it with what's happening today, which is quiet. It's it's easy mm -hmm. to say, well, you know, there was an overreaction or they mm -hmm. shouldn't have done it that way. But they're bringing us back to that time. Those emails, mm -hmm. those some foul uh, language in the text brings us back to a time that we shouldn't forget. We shouldn't try to judge it with what is today, but judge it with the with the yes with the emotion and with the fears and the real fears that were happening then and this the urgency stuff and i want to pick up on that because what we were seeing as a picture being painted by christian freeland was they were in the middle of negotiations with the u.s mm -hmm. to try and ensure that we could be a reliable trading partner and all the while the largest trading link that we have the ambassador bridge is blocked mm -hmm. What did that tell you about that testimony and how urgent of an issue that was behind the scenes and also the, the long-term ramifications that Freeland was talking about, not just of the Ambassador Bridge in that moment, but what it would say about Canada as a reliable trading partner going forward. Yeah, I think um, the scope of what Christopher Freeland said in her evidence is the thing that sort of struck me, Mike, mm. this idea. We'd heard before. We heard it back then, right? Oh, the United States is worried about the border of the United States, this. But when she's talking about the language, the messaging that was coming at her from the United States, every single automaker is going to shut down. That's big stuff. And, you yeah. know, it's really easy to look at it right now and say, that was hyperbole. The border was fine. It all got cleared out. But again, let's go back to the moment. Let's right. go back to the unknown of the moment with evidence flying in all directions. No one's really sure who these people are. How long are they going to stay? What's it going to need to get out there? And then in the meantime, coming down, you know, is the elephant next door threatening to squash the mouse if we don't deal with this. And that has long-term repercussions that, you know, 
aren't great for the Canadian economy, to put it mildly. Especially when you consider they just finished some negotiations that were a little tense. A little. With former <laughs> President Donald Trump. A little awkward at times <laughs> as well. Um, speaking about uh, tense and awkward, maybe that's what we'll see when we get, take you back to the inquiry, where we have three members of the Prime Minister's <clears throat> inner circle testifying. We'll listen in a little bit more here. In various locations, law enforcement had tools that they weren't able to enforce because there were other more serious issues preventing that. And that's partly why decision was made to invoke the act the next day. Okay, and so you would agree that the Prime Minister had that information as well, that there were tools available, but that they weren't being used? As I said, that was obvious to everyone who was watching what was going on the ground. Okay, thank you. Um, I would like the Kirk to please pull up ssm.nsc.can four zeros two nine four one. And this is a record that um, Commission Council has taken you through in some detail already. There's just a few places where I was hoping you could help me um, read some of the writing. So, Mr. Clerk, if you could please um, scroll down to page 12. Actually, this is not something that I need clarification on the writing on, but something I do have a question on. Um, let me just make sure I'm in the right place here. So if you see on the right-hand side, there's a note beside Brenda, and I'm um, assuming this is Commissioner Lucky, is that correct? Yes. Okay. And she indicates uh, with respect to Coots, they were almost gone, but a pastor incited them to stay, was 250 vehicles, now down to 40, and weapons are in the protest, need to go slow here. Was the Prime Minister part of this conversation? Yes, he was. This was the February 10th incident response group meeting. Okay, good, thank you. And then if we go to page 23, here's where I'll need your help interpreting the writing. Thank you. So we can see about a quarter of way down the page, um, there's an arrow and it says specific. And what's the next word after that? To be honest, I can't read it either. The, the quality of the photocopy is not, it's not strong. Okay. So specific something, draft list, using the money as a, and then the, What's that next word there? As a hook for the national stuff. So this was a reference to there. We knew and we heard on the FMM call that some premiers and some people felt that the act should not be provided, applied nationally. And this comment referred to needing to underscore in the communications that part of the reason the act needed to apply nationally was so that it would apply to financial transactions across the country, given many of the demonstrators were from across the country. And you, yeah, I think you just said that this was about um, needing to refer in the communications. What communications are you talking about? So this was February 14th, 12.30 p.m. after the FMM as preparations were underway for a potential prime ministerial announcement later that afternoon. Prime Minister. So that is Brian Clow, um, Katie Telford, and John Broadhead testifying. We're going to bring back our press gallery panel, and I'm going to get it right this time. It's Laura Kirkamaki. I said it. I did it. 
I'm happy. Stephanie Levitz, Joyce Napier, thank you all for being back here. Let's look ahead to tomorrow. Uh, Joyce, we'll start with you. What are you expecting from the prime minister? Well, you know, he is the one who pulled the trigger, so to mm -hmm. speak. He's the one who made that decision. So I'm expecting that he will be asked eventually that question. I mean, he's on the stand, I think, all day. Mm -hmm. So there will be a lot of questions. So he'll go through what we have now heard in the last, you know, five, almost six weeks. Um, you know, what Christian Freeland said today, what that was the threat to our economy, uh, the threat to people's well-being, mm -hmm. so on, so on. But I think the what I want to hear from him is when he decided, because it ultimately his decision, yes, the House voted, but it was his, what what was in the, what weighed the most in the balance for him? Why did he think that was, you know, he had to do that? Laura, take me inside a prime minister's office and, you know, what weight that must have carried for him at the time. I mean, not that you were mm -hmm. in that mm -hmm. moment, uh, but having been in a prime minister's office to understand that sort of moment of solitude that perhaps he was going through at that time. Yeah, I think you've seen just from how long this inquiry has been going on, all of the weeks sort of like leading up to the decision. Obviously, it was about, you know, a little under a month's time. Um, so, and there's advice from so many different people, right? All the ministers, so many different agencies. Um, so it is a very, very, very big decision, of course. Um, but I think the big kind of takeaway from what we're seeing, at least from my experience working on, uh, obviously not an issue to this degree, mm -hmm. where you have seven ministers, the prime minister, three senior staff appearing at a public inquiry for full days at a time. Um, but, you know, similar issues. I was there during uh, the Duffy uh, situation that was unfolding. And I mean, it does just distract so many levels of senior staff. I mean, who is making decisions while all of this is going on? You know, there are off their message. They're not talking about things they want to be talking about. And so it is just an extreme uh, distraction um, and takes a lot of time and effort away. Think about all the people that had to prepare, um, all of the ministers mm -hmm. that have spent time preparing, you know, all of the civil servants even. Um, and then, of course, the prime minister's top advisors. So it's extremely time consuming. Um, and I guess we'll see how it all kind of plays out. I mean, I think this was a calculated risk. Uh, they knew what, what would happen if they invoked the act, and they knew that a public inquiry was an outcome that would happen. Yeah. Steph, I wanted to ask you, because I've likened this whole inquiry to a puzzle. And we started to see pieces come on. And now it seems coming up to tomorrow, we got one more piece. It's going to finally lay it all flat. Do you think it will complete a different picture than what we expected on the box when we bought this puzzle? Oh, that's a great question, Mike. I mean... Part of it is going to rest on the questions being put to the prime minister and the extent to which he is <clears throat> confronted with the evidence that, not that we know now, right? That has to be the important factor here. There's a lot of stuff we know now, but what he knew then. Mm -hmm. And so he has got to give for the Canadian public and take all of those puzzle pieces that have pr been presented over time. This was happening. This was happening. This was happening. And explain and knit it all together. And some of that will rest on the questions that are coming. And it also... You know, he is the, I'm saying something that's kind of obvious. He is the prime minister. This is a chance for him to literally show the nation and explain to the nation why he made a decision that is highly controversial and with important repercussions for democracy, for, the, for our state going forward. His demeanor, his affect, how he handles the questions. These are all going to be tells about this prime minister, about his future longevity as leader of this country. I mean, this is a bigger moment than just this act, in my opinion. And so it'll be fascinating to watch how that spools out and, and where Justin Trudeau goes next after he has to show the public why he made this call. How important is this, not in terms of a performance as in like it's a performance, but in terms of what he will put outwards to the public tomorrow? 
Well, I think if, if you're asking me about the, about the political fallout, I don't think there's going to be a lot of it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think the decision is going to be black or white. Um, and we know that from, from the evidence that we're hearing from, you know, a little bit of the contradictions that, you know, the decision was made, but it wasn't like a crazy decision or as crazy as it may be, mm -hmm. even if it's a first. So I think I'm not sure that there's a big political price to pay, but I do agree with Stephanie. It will be interesting to see the demeanor, the way he answers mm -hmm. the questions, how candid he will be and, you know, how well he will be able to explain why he eventually decided, because again, it was his decision to make, why he did that. Mm -hmm. One minute left. Laura, I wanted to ask you, what are you hoping to hear from the Prime Minister tomorrow as an explanation? I think uh, the thing that a lot of people are hearing is just why this was so necessary when there were other uh, entities that were saying that it wasn't, um, and then when the police were getting ready to move in anyways. I think one of the risks for the prime minister is that he has a tendency in these moments where he's made poor decisions to act very laissez-faire towards it, to make it seem like it's not a big deal and brush things off. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're appearing on something like this, um, where it actually isn't really clear about whether or not completely that this was the right call to make, um, whether or not he can kind of defend that choice. And I mean, uh, you know, he's a great actor, but it's hard to be uh, under oath for eight hours of the day. So it's going to be, um, it's going to be really interesting. Yeah, appreciate it. Laura Kurkamaki, Stephanie Levitz, Joyce Napier, we appreciate it. We appreciate you being there. Don't forget to tune in tomorrow at 9.30. News Channel will have full coverage of the Prime Minister's testimony. That is your Power Play Day in Politics. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. We'll be right back here tomorrow looking back at the Prime Minister's testimony and likely when he's still on the stand. Until then, have a great night, everyone.